You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. A quick note before the show, I want to thank the listeners who've decided to support us on Patreon. We've crossed the 100 supporter mark, and that's awesome, and Karen and I thank you very much. Your support really helps us a lot. If we could get to 500 supporters at a dollar a show, it would absolutely transform our lives. But we're humbled by any support and appreciate all of it. But if you love what we do and can't afford to support the show financially, we hope you'll at least give us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. It really helps us out. Thanks. Every ghost story has two ingredients, a ghost and a story. In Edinburgh, Scotland, there's a graveyard that has piled up stories for nearly 20 years of people experiencing odd things and receiving mysterious injuries. The location is known as the Greyfriars Kirkyard, and the ghost has been called the Mackenzie Poltergeist, though it bears little resemblance to the poltergeist's common to parapsychology. People touring the Kirkyard have reported receiving strange cuts and bruises and experiencing many strange phenomena. So, Bundle up in your warm clothes and get ready to walk around in the foggy, cold, and damp looking for ghosts in the Kirkyard. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. In this episode, we'll be talking with Fred Fogarty, one of the tour guides for City of the Dead tours in Edinburgh. Fred was kind enough to talk with us on very short notice, and we had a wonderful time chatting with him. I think you'll find he's quite a storyteller. I suspect his tours would be a lot of fun. We did have more questions than we had time for, so we've continued our conversations via email after this chat. And I'll talk about that after the interview. 
Karen and I live a bit too far away to go investigate this case ourselves, but perhaps some of our listeners will be intrigued and go have a look. I think there's some interesting aspects to this story to have a look at, some on the ground and probably some in the library. Monster Talk. So, hey, Fred, we, we don't really know much about you. So this is all really quick, and we really appreciate your promptness in joining us and making time for us. Yeah, thank but you. Could you, could you give us a little bit of an intro for yourself? Like, who are you? Like a bio sure, sort I of guess. thing? So, yeah. um, I can got it written down somewhere. But essentially, um, I, I can read it to you if you like, but essentially I work for uh, City of the Dead Tours in Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, we take tours into two quite remarkable locations, the first being the Covenanters prison, steeped in history. Uh, it's so important for Scottish history. Um, and, uh, and most importantly, into the Black Mausoleum, and we uh, learn more about the Mackenzie Poltergeist, this fascinating phenomenon that for the, since 1998 has been known to violently and physically assault people in and around the area of the graveyard. Uh, we also go into the South Bridge Vaults, part of Edinburgh's underground city. Um, and we we go into the, the, the southernmost section. It's fairly undisturbed, one of the least um, least refurbished portions. Um, and go on about the South Bridge entity. And it's relevant as various guises. Um, I have been doing that for over a decade, um, particularly with regards to the graveyard Um having a wonderful time uh, i've got a, a quite a an eclectic history of various things i worked as a professional break dancer uh, i've worked as <laughs> a welfare <laughs> advisor uh, i also work as a hypnotherapist um and that's the reason why i'm in uh, chicago at the moment on a similar time zone to yourself studying with my friend and mentor learning about other than conscious communication and no psychology um so all of these things um what else is there to say? I'm not sure. Yeah, right. I'm, uh, Alison, whom you spoke with recently, describes me as a colorful freak. <laughs> it is probably accurate. <laughs> well, you sound like you're going to be a really interesting discussion here, or you're going mm-hmm. to bring us a very interesting discussion. So that's awesome. Um, so she also described you as a fairly skeptical person. Uh, so, mm. uh, but maybe that's not how you view yourself. Where, where do you feel? Like, like, I guess you'll talk about this as you go along, but how do you feel about yes, these? Uh, uh, like what? I guess maybe what's the most compelling sort of paranormal things you've run into? Um, so like it's it comes across like a, a broad range of things. To be honest with you, like like I've either myself have walked out of this particular portion of the graveyard with three fairly deep gouges across my chest in a very typical pattern, and that after maybe seven years or so, six years of doing the tours, I felt nothing at the time. It's very common. Um, I've uh, experienced things where someone on my tour has seen something, described to me what they've seen, and later on I've discovered that a friend of a friend didn't make it to a particular portion of a tour because she saw, in her words, very, very closely matched what this other person was describing, but from a different angle at a different place, and these two stories linked up so elegantly, like two cogs in a perfect machine right uncanny um yeah i've walked out of the well my first tour inside of this place um i experienced what people i suppose describe as cold spots but for me it's not about the typical um drop in temperature that people often describe uh, for me it is more like um an internal like a visceral experience like a like a real intense 
discomfort like the kind of experience you might get if well for me personally when i walked into a place or a room or met somebody and absolutely did not feel safe right um and it was my first ever tour and i had eight customers with me and the eight of us left only five minutes into a 15 minute section of the tour in that particular location because we could not stand the experience uh, and yeah, no, we, we, I mean, we just left. We didn't do the scary stuff in there at all. We didn't even get much into the scary stuff. We left. Well, if you felt the- scared, you, you didn't really need to, right? <laughs> yeah, indeed. So it's just, it's just really weird. I mean, yeah, these things for me are, are fascinating. But if you're interested, like, ask me the question about, I'm a skeptic, what does that mean? <laughs> like, later on with my experiences, I'm very happily talk about it until, until your ears fall off. Oh, okay. Well, okay. we'll get to it. But I, I think you fit on a lot of topics uh, that are going to be delved into deeper as we get into our questions. So this is exciting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I thought we'd start. We'll go back to the beginning and uh, talk about Grey Friars Kirkyard in, in general. Uh, so Kirkyard, that's a Scottish term for churchyard? Exactly, yeah. We just used, well, just, in Scots, we got Kirk instead of church. Oh, yeah, oh, so oh. I, I had a question, a follow-up <laughs> question I forgot to ask, <laughs> which was... The thought- uh, my, no, my, my, how do you determine a cold spot when you're in Scotland? That was my joke. I forgot. Oh, very good. Oh, yeah, very good. good. Point. We run a we run a similar joke. If you feel if you feel like a really cold sensation in your ankles, yeah, right? like it just really gets to set in from the skin, starts to get deeper and deeper, and you start to get like a a flesh like the goosebumps at the back of your legs, and this discomfort sort of works its way up your your leg, up your calf. Right? What we call that? It's a very technical term. It's a draft. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you are a hypnotherapist, aren't you? Yes, ma'am. I'm a piece, yeah. the, the way the way you were describing that just sounded like a, a <laughs> hypnotherapy script or something. <laughs> so, Grief Rise Kirkyard, it's got a very long history, uh, but can you give us a an overview of its past? Sure, very very brief. Grief Rise Kirkyard is is an extraordinary piece of Edinburgh itself. It sits in the southwestern corner of what used to be the old town. And one of our very important structures runs along the western side of it. And in fact, bisects the graveyard. Um, well, it, it divides it up. Um, and that is the Flodden Wall. Now, um, the graveyard itself was, we began use primarily as, a, as an important place of burial for the Grey Friars. I think there were Franciscan monks monks at the time. Um, And that was in the early 1600s. Various other portions of the graveyard were donated to the church to be used as burial grounds. And the Covenanters Prison, which sits to the southernmost point of the graveyard and juts out quite prominently, um, was the last piece of ground given to the graveyard for burial. Prior to that, it had been used, as the name suggests, as, as a prison for these people known as the Covenanters. Um, and they were, I mean, their the history is um, fascinating. It's also absurdly complex. And I hope you'll forgive me for this because I ditched history at the age of 14 because <laughs> I, I couldn't make sense of it. Like all this stuff about name, date, battle, king, who won, who lost, and then some other nonsense. Like I gave up history after I got past the Romans and chariots. I enjoyed the Romans, the Egyptians, like a bit of medieval stuff. Uh, and the dinosaurs and that was what i enjoyed so i ditched it as soon as i could um and it's only by coming back to this this company this city of the dead tours um and working really just in administration briefly that i discovered how extraordinary history is when 
when you have these, these amazing people, my colleagues I work with, and the people who came before me as well, um, have just been the most extraordinary storytellers. Now, there's a script for the tours. No one's really seen it. <laughs> Everyone does their own research. They tell the tours. They, they're, they're the most extraordinary storytellers and amateur historians. And, and everything about it brings the history to life, brings the location to life, and it, it makes it relevant to us right, right now as, right. Far as well. Human narrative, right? I mean, it's, it's about people exactly. at that point, right? Not just dates and names, right? Yes, right. And that's a, that's a lovely way to describe it, I think. Yeah. So um, I got working there. I discovered much more about it. got more into it. Um, so the, what I'm saying is that the history of the Covenanters themselves, these people who uh, in the graveyard itself, uh, in 1637, right, Charles I wanted to unite the disparate churches of England and Scotland, uh, and Scotland would have to change its style and worship in the English way. And being forced into the English way was, I believe, a step too close to Catholicism. Uh, and they, absolutely, they just rebelled. And in 1638, they drew up a lengthy document uh, entitled, I think locally, colloquially, as a National Covenant with God. Uh, in the graveyard itself, um, they went, it was a lengthy document. If I butcher it for you, it goes along the lines of, Charles, you're okay as a king. You're not better than God. And we reserve the right to worship God any style we see fit. I think that's very much verbatim what I learned from one of my colleagues, uh, my first ever tour. Um, but essentially, essentially, that's, that's what the, the, um, the relevant portion of it comes down to there. And it's, it was an extraordinary move. It really was an extraordinary move. This national covenant that they signed is both, I think, one of like a real early example of the church and state being separated in, in, a, in a legal document, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also like the, the ramifications of this thing are far reached to the point where portions of it and this is possibly subjective. It certainly looks like it to me. Portions of it were taken nearly verbatim and used as a foundation for things like the American Constitution, right? It's it, the, the impact that, the, that this document has from the mid-1600s that we still feel today is extraordinary. Um, so um, we, we cross some time here. Um, and at this point, Charles II is on the throne. Um, the... Covenanter armies, the armies of people who support this document, support this this notion. It's oh, oh, you know, for the American audiences, how long are the uh, terms of office for these kings? How long are they elected for? <laughs> <laughs> Just four <All> right. years. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 uh, the the administration is uh, is as long as the king lives, right? So that's or until there's a battle, right? <laughs> or until they abdicate, or until... Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of politics that goes on with a lot of the royals yeah. behind the mm-hmm. scenes, right? Um, and, I mean, yeah, like, so history is not my strong point. There's so much there that you do well to get a historian on to talk about it, because it is... That's okay. I mean, yeah. ...a long, messed-up story. But it's interesting. It is interesting. So keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where was I, Blake? I have no idea, mate. Charles um, oh, yeah. II, so, I think. So these, these people, the, 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 what, what ends up being formed is this like, Covenanter army, is what they're known as. The armies of people who support this this national covenant. Um, they end up going, uh, heading down to England, fighting for their rights. There's loads more to it than this. This is really just the butchering of the history to get us to where we need to be. Um, the, the armies don't do well, right? They do remarkably well. They're given back this very basic right. I mean, the notion that, that a people can rise up and commit treason, in essence, and that's exactly what it is, and, and do so well that they are given back this very basic right, and they're permitted to return home I mean, that's, that's extraordinary to me. That notion, they can all commit treason, 
um, there's extra pressure placed on the king from a rebellion at the same time. And he just essentially, in essence, is like, okay, whatever you want, just leave me alone. I obviously paraphrase for you there because I wasn't there. Um, <laughs> and, and they return. Oh, sorry, that's not accurate. Some of them return. But, but there is still a chance to go on and take the fight to the English. I mean, the history of England and Scotland has rarely been amicable at best. So um, at this point here, the fortunes of the Covenanters change quite rapidly. Um, and eventually there are only a handful of these people remaining. Now, depending on where you look, it's either 400 or 1,200 people. They are marched back up through England into Scotland, allegedly with no shoes on their feet. And it's a, it's a long way, right? It's not an easy walk either, right? There's no, there's no nice paths. Where marched all the way up. Kind of rocky. Yeah, right. And they're marched all the way up with no shoes on their feet to Edinburgh. And this man, George Mackenzie, who is at this point the king's advocate. So he's the, he's, he starts off. I, for some reason, I keep getting this confused. I keep telling people he starts off as a lawyer, starts off life as a lawyer. In fact, he starts off as a child. Uh, he becomes a lawyer later <laughs> on. Uh, the lawyers ever to... children. Oh, well, that is a good question. Pause for laugh. No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so he, um, he, 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 so he's a king's representative in Edinburgh. Right. And the story of this man is is complex as well. Like it's it's always easy for us to as, as people, I guess, as humans to create an easy narrative to explain stuff and to give people an idea of things. But in fact, like it is more complex. So he um, is tasked from Charles with the idea of creating um, a statement with these prisoners that is so dramatic. That is that is that is so effective that it will stop any kind of uprising from happening again. Right Now, bear in mind, at the time, Edinburgh streets are allegedly an inch deep in everyone's sewage. We regularly turn to like, torture, public humiliation, execution, witch hunting. Okay, like, life is cheap. The figure that is thrown around is that for a portion of our history, there were, um, I'm not sure of its validity, but the story goes that there are up to, sorry, in excess of 80,000 people at its peak in a space that is two-thirds of a mile by a quarter. Wow. Right, if you can imagine two, like 80,000 bits. So like, even if the number is only slightly accurate, we're still left with a staggering number of people in, in an, an extraordinarily small portion of space living in the kind of poverty, not poverty, um, well, poverty existed there as well, as we'll get into perhaps in the South Bridge vaults. Be, being there. treated only marginally better than passengers on an airline these days. Or <laughs> being dragged down the aisle, broken nose and concussion of whatever happened. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Oh, my goodness. Does, does that give you an idea of just how far this has to go in order to, to create a statement that yeah, will... Yeah, to, to stick it, out in this crowd as a bad guy making things bad for people, you got to be bad. Or at, least, or at least just a statement of what happens if yeah. you commit treason. I mean, that's the standout part. Yeah. Um, to give you some idea of like this is more complex, right? So it's easy it's easy for us to vilify George Mackenzie, and it is absolutely worth remembering that one man's terrorist is another man's champion. That's true, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So a colleague of mine, so I haven't done this research myself. This is what I get from a colleague of mine. He points out that George Mackenzie wrote early treatises, and bear in mind this we're going back to the late 1600s, right? So um, this is really, really progressive. George Mackenzie writes early treatises on the notion that uh, because essentially just opposite the Covenanters' prison used to be 
like a bedlam place, a bedlam place, a place for people who are mentally ill, for people who are committing crime, stuff like this. They, we, we, at various stages, it transformed its its face into various things over there. So, um, like at the time, the prevailing notion was, if you were in these places, it was because that was essentially your destiny, right? That's the kind of person you are, and people born into poverty are there because they're because they're worth nothing, right? Like they're, they're, they're mentally deficient, whatever. They're not as, they're not as smart. They're not as godly. They're not as wonderful as, as the people in the upper classes. And here is this, exactly. Right. And here is this man who is this person who is writing a treatise at the time from a position of authority, extraordinary authority in, in a capital city, suggesting the notion and, uh, not just positing it, but actually doing the best to fight its corner, that if you ended up, say, like criminals, things like this, people like this, um, maybe they're there as a product of society, of their upbringing, of the choices presented to them, and they could be educated out of it. So it's the, the nature versus nurture. Very progressive. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, right? For the late 1600s, that is mind-blowing, yeah. right? And yet this same man is also... Uh, in a position where he is left with these either 400 or 1,200 people, he would have committed treason, and regardless of how he feels about it, regardless of how much we have vilified him in the following years, he took these 1,200 people, people who were essentially heroes to the locals and to much of Scotland, and he's got to make a spectacle of them that will deter any and all uh, treason or subterfuge and all the rest of his stuff uh, in perpetuity. In a world, in a place, in a tiny city where we regularly turn our thoughts to a whole bunch of cruel, dramatic, bloodthirsty things living inches deep in, in sewage. Right? This, is, this, is, this is what he's going to contend with. So this man, he takes these people and he places them in the space at the back of the graveyard. And it's not consecrated. It's not burial ground at this point. It's the last piece to be given to the, to the graveyard after this. Um, he lines them up. Now, the space of it, let me think uh, how far it might be to describe to you. Uh, I'm rubbish at estimating distance. Let's say it is, let's say it's a couple of hundred feet. Okay? I suspect the information is there online as part of the, um, the graveyard's documentation. Okay. Um, these days, if you were to walk up to the gates and look down into this narrow strip, okay, you see a space that is maybe 20 feet in width, lined on either side back from there, with these gorgeous mausoleums and they're lovely right they're be- they're they're beautiful they're foreboding but they're also places that speak of, of the history of lineage of all sorts of amazing things i mean uh, it's such a place for us that we even have a plaque erected in memory of james hutton the father of modern geology okay so it's not just a place that is squirreled off it's a place that is even now like fairly fresh in our memory because it's quite a fresh plaque even though nobody's been buried in a graveyard for over a hundred years, because it is, it is. And if you can imagine this for a moment, Blake and Karen, this this graveyard is full, quite literally, to bursting point. Okay. So, of the dead. <laughs> and that is how it gets its name exactly. Yes. So uh, down this strip, we've got these beautiful mausoleums on the side, and maybe a couple of hundred feet in length, uh, and these four hundred to twelve hundred people are taken into this area lined up from the back they're forced kicked down into the ground and they're forced to lie there through five months of a brutal scottish winter right now we give them only um the food water 
and shelter required just to really prolong this suffering and just to really drag it out so that as many people as possible can endure five months of this. So here they lie, right? I mean, they're, they're really, I mean, their suffering is quite extraordinary, right? Um, they are, yeah, I mean, if they moved or complained, they're taken out and shot allegedly by muskets. There are still holes in the wall outside from where the musket balls like punctured their bodies and shattered their rocks behind. Uh, it is, it is quite extraordinary. Now, um, they said that for the five months, if anybody moves or complains, it said they're taken out to the front and executed. If they try to escape, soldiers positioned around the wall just shot them. Okay. Very few of these covenants. So, I mean, here is the thing. Uh, these covenanters, these people who support this thing, these pr- prisoners here, they were officially free to leave any time that they wished to do so. Okay. All they had to do was to swear fealty to the king, worship in his style. Okay. Um, and very few of them did. Now, there may be a whole bunch of reasons for this. Some of them, um, well, what life is then is there for them outside of those walls? If they go back to their families, their friends, their loved ones, having renounced their faith, their beliefs, and gone against everything they stood for. Mm. Part of it is, <laughs> you know, they, they, I mean, they, they, they were willing to die already. They were, they were willing to, to join an army, sign up, and were quite willing to accept their fate. For their beliefs. Anyway, we can see why why George McKenzie is known as Bloody George McKenzie. Indeed. Yes, he's got a hell of a reputation, and part of that is arguably justified. And I think I've already, I hope I've already given you an indication that the story is much more complex than this. And part of mm-hmm. yeah, there's this notion of of drawing the easy narrative, um, and then it gets lost in history as well. is is quite prevalent, I think, and quite an interesting quite an interesting phenomenon. So we'll we'll have to put. I mean, we'll put links to some uh, some of the research about uh, McKinsey and the history of this on the website. Obviously, people could just Google it, but uh, I guess we wouldn't be talking about this story if there wasn't a supernatural or monstrous aspect to it. Now, the exactly. the the nature of this is somewhat monstrous in general, but. Uh, this is this falls into an interesting category because uh, on Monster Talk we talk about ghosts sometimes and we've talked about poltergeists. But you know, I'd always heard about the Greyfriar Kirkyard uh, as just that. I I heard it called the Greyfriar Kirkyard Ghost, and it wasn't until I talked to Allison I realized that it was being known as the McKinsey Poltergeist. Um, mm. And so let let's talk about that a little bit if you don't mind. What? Of course. Where where does the supernatural aspect come into this? Like where where does it become a scary story and not just a pretty graveyard? Sure. So Mackenzie's tomb itself lies maybe seventy feet from this portion of the graveyard. Now, for for a very very long time, like hundreds of years, um, the nearby school children have often run into his tomb, and depending on which version you hear, it's usually on the lines of Mackenzie, Mackenzie, come out and get me. Um, it's been fabled that uh, his coffin. So. The we can get to the story in a minute, but essentially the tomb is quite unique. The mausoleum is quite unique in that it exists over a minimum of two levels. Okay. So there is a sub there is a sub chamber beneath it, um, which contains his coffin, his wife's coffin, uh, and a third coffin that belongs to a lady, placed in there quite some time after um, the tomb was shut. No one has any idea who she is. 
but there is no record of her being placed in there. And yet to be placed in there, she must have been important, right? Because this tomb is the grandest mausoleum in the graveyard. So it's unusual. His tomb, his coffin in particular, has been uh, as legendary as legend has it, has been um, known to move around ever since his burial there um, at various points throughout the day and night when people walk past and didn't walk past. So um, in 1998, that stops. In 1998, uh, as the story goes, um, a homeless guy is making his way through Greyfriars graveyard. He, um, he's seeking shelter from a Scottish night and the weather. And he breaks in from the back of Mackenzie's tomb. Now, there is indeed like a, a brick that used to be there that was, I mean, it's essentially Mackenzie buried there. I think it's uh, late 1600s, early 1700s, I think in particular. Um, the wa- the wa- mortar is old. It's, it's, it's old, it's rotten, uh, and the brick grumbles inside. And so this homeless guy squeezes his narrow, emaciated body through, and he notices fairly quickly, as you would do if you were to look through the gates just now, that there is a metal grill set in the floor. Now, these days, it has been sealed properly so that you can't get through because of the break-ins that they've had um, in the most recent set of years. Prior to that, it wasn't even locked. And the homeless guy makes his way down this steep stone flight of stairs, finds himself in the sub-chamber, and proceeds to attempt to hammer into into Mackenzie's coffin itself with a stone slab that he has procured from the floor beneath his feet. Um... But the floor beneath that slab is not solid. And he falls into an additional burial pit that no one was aware of below it. Now, um, as he freaks out and hollers and screams and shouts, the, our caretaker, Graham, who like, I have met, and he's lovely, um, he is making his way through the graveyard and he is I think, categorically not thrilled at the prospect of being outside in a typical Scottish night in a legendarily haunted graveyard with a loud crashing noise coming from the legendarily haunted tomb of George Bloody Mackenzie, right? And as he looks in through the door of the mausoleum, he sees that this grill in the floor is open for the first time in living history. Now, it's not an attractive prospect, I think, for this man. Um, but it's still, it's still absolutely his job to go and work out what it is. Um, to cut some of the story short for you, so there's something still for people to turn up to in the tours. Uh, he gets downstairs <laughs> to, discover, to discover that the homeless guy is emerging <laughs> from this undisclosed, formerly unknown burial pit beneath, <laughs> shuffling in the dark, <laughs> making his way towards him. Uh, and the two share what I think we can describe it as a moment. <laughs> so um, whatever happens for these two men in this place, like we have no idea, I think it's fair to say, like what, um, what this thing, um, what this phenomenon is, right? Um, there's lots of thoughts behind it or, or what specifically creates it. So we call it a poltergeist. Um, and sorry, back when, um, Back when we started, that seemed to make sense. It certainly is much easier for us to give you the title of a poltergeist than for us to give you all the little details, all the minutiae that we've covered in the last um, 19 now, 19 years. 
of researching this, of taking tour groups through, finding out what awful stuff happens to them, <laughs> and finding some way of encouraging them to come back to our office uh, and put pen to paper. So do all of the the stories of paranormal activity go back to this incident or do they go back further? So like certainly um, there are a bunch of theories about this, right? So as I understand it, um, because I only started back in the early 2000s, right? The tomb is desecrated in 1998 by this homeless guy. And something about this place, whether it's a desecration of the burial pit beneath or Mackenzie's tomb or what these two men share together, the graveyard already has a reputation for being a thin place. Right? If you look through its history, it is extraordinary how much of the fiction that we know of even today has been birthed in this particular place. It's remarkable. Ooh, um, uh, d- just quickly, I, I know uh, we've mentioned thin places before, but that's. Uh, could you describe what that means? So, as described to me, it's just a place where the veil between, or place between this world and the next, is very thin. Yeah, and they, we we sometimes it's also called liminal spaces as well. I think. Okay, so yeah, that's right. So we don't like it is easier for us to tell you that it's a poltergeist, um, and for people because people generally have an appreciation for what a poltergeist is or what it implies. Um, then for us to get super technical and describe to people all the little things that have happened lead us to believe this thing is truly unique. Right? There is nothing else like this on the planet. And we've been doing this for a long, long time. And because we have sole access with permission from the council to go into this location, right, if anything happens to people in there, it happens to people on our tours. Now, a lot of stuff goes unmentioned for a variety of reasons, because maybe they feel awkward, a bit embarrassed about their experience. Maybe they dismiss it as being psychosomatic, right? Um, maybe they just, maybe they, quite often they're pretty jarred by the experience and they don't really know what to make of it until quite some time later. Um, so do you get people to sign, uh, sorry to interrupt, but do you get people to sign disclaimers when uh, they attend the tours to let them know that? Anything can happen? There's no disclaimer. It quite clearly says on our web pages and it quite clearly says on our sign and we make a disclaimer at the beginning of each of our tours of the kind of things that have happened regardless of people's belief systems to people on our tours um, and that the tours can cause genuine mental distress. And and they can. They really can. Um, people often ask me what the most terrifying thing is that I've seen or experienced on my tours. And it's not what you might think. In fact, it was terrifying precisely because it didn't happen to me. Right? On two occasions, my tours, and this, this is very rare. This is two occasions in over 10 years. Okay? Um, I've had uh, females in my tour, women in my tour, who have a um, couple minutes in, maybe five, seven minutes in, collapsed. Okay? Now, that's not unusual. That happens every now and again in our tours. But once they collapsed, they started, well, they were, they were unconscious. When they came round, they started convulsing. And that would last for maybe sort of a minute and a half, two minutes, and then they go unconscious again. And that maybe lasts for a minute and a half or so. Then they come around, start convulsing again. This, like, we, we got them out of the graveyard as best I could whilst they were, like, you know, myself and some people at the tour, we, we encouraged them out of the graveyard. Once we got to the gates of the prison itself, which is very unusual. Normally, if people experience something untowards or uncomfortable, 
um, once they leave the gate of the the um, the mausoleum, the black mausoleum, which I think, for clarity's sake, I should make clear here that uh, Mackenzie's tomb is not the black mausoleum. Oh, really? Uh, over the last over the last couple of years, there have been a number of tour groups starting up who have just been, have been on our tour once, stolen our stuff, <laughs> like, and then and then and then just just yeah, just just made up the rest, right, and keep saying nonsense, um, which which is I don't know, I guess how how history has always happened i suspect right um okay. it's just find it curious that it's happening now when the authorities are still here we're the authorities um so so the black mausoleum exists within the covenanters prison it's about halfway down the left hand side in one of the early uh tombs and some mausoleums that are in fact fully enclosed that appears to be where this thing has made its nest um for the last so 1999 was when it made was when it sort of really focused in that one particular area. Um, so that makes it 19 years, now, doesn't it? Yes. Okay. So that's 19 years. Yeah, it, almost, it almost 20. Yes. The place. Yeah, it initially moved around the place from tomb to tomb in there, um, but really it has really started to focus in the last 15 odd years, most definitely in that one particular tomb. Mackenzie's tomb lies around 100 feet away from the entrance. Right, his tomb rarely anything happens there very very rarely uh, in fact um i i was in the habit of saying that nothing happens there at all anymore but in fact on one of my tours about three months ago we had a group of six uh, customers myself um just looking into mackenzie's tomb and what is interesting is that each of us experienced a very cold pressure of like a like a cold finger sideways on something like this pressing against the back of our necks right the base of them now what's interesting is like yeah we, we all got this sensation without anybody mentioning it to each other not you know like we all went through it and then said man that was weird i had this cold sensation yes me too yes me too that was weird <laughs> right very very cool so where were we, Blake? That's right, Karen. We're um, we're at the worst thing that's happened to me. These well, two guys, we're getting past the gates. <laughs> yeah, well, well, quickly, I just want to clarify. So you're saying the Black Mausoleum is not Mackenzie's tomb? Exactly. Who, exactly. Who, whose tomb is it? Belongs to the Dundas family. That is so, it's like so right. It's all over the internet, like that they think it's the same thing. That's so interesting. Okay. Yes, Good. yep, yep. Yep, so you have the scoop right here, Karen. Blake. Like, this is they're not the same thing. <laughs> Um, and yeah, it's, it just, it's really interesting that there have been other tour companies coming by who have like rewritten history, mm-hmm. even, even as it's, even as it's happening, it's being rewritten. Well, I mean, uh, let's be honest, Google could rewrite history if they, since yeah. you, they, they could completely change what people believe way faster mm-hmm. than, a, uh, the classes of America, right? All the, all those. Absolutely. Schools, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's just a really, and and I've just cast my mind back. This is what I love about the tour: is the things that it teaches us about ourselves, what it is to be human in society and mm-hmm. culture, things like this. We look mm-hmm. back. Who's to say that what we have now is our appreciation of history was not rewritten as it happened as well? I mean, like here we still have things that are like there's so much knowledge available, information available that at least you can, if you have the mind to make an informed decision. Right. Whereas even back a hundred years, that's not really. You know, that's not really a thing that happens. If you think about um, the gold standards of things like the Encyclopedia Britannica, that's still one person's idea or like a collection of people's ideas to what happened. They've just made, like, put together a narrative for us and said, here you go. Right? So it, I find it really interesting that we still face these same problems and it, it puts into perspective yeah, like the, yeah, our, our history as, as storytellers, as history keepers, 
as humans. Yeah. So I guess they used to say what a history is uh, written by the winners, and I think now history is written by the search engine, right? <laughs> yeah, or the people who shout the loudest. The loudest. That's right. So. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so didn't mean to derail the conversation. Sorry. That's okay. I still remember where we are. So um, once you reach the gates of the prison, these two women um, start to come round, and we and we get them out of the, the graveyard. I'm not getting any kind of statement from them. Right? You just have to take it on the authority of me, I guess, because there's no way I'm encouraging someone to sit down and write out their experience, given what they've just been through. And there is nothing like we are trained in first aid, right? Um, but there is, there is very little in my first aid training that can prepare one for something like this. And there's nothing quite like that sense of, of powerlessness and the unknown um, and, and it happening extemporaneously. I mean, you say it's, um, you can, you can say, well, it's psychosomatic. Well, that's possible, but it's not me that suggested it, right? It's not a power of suggestion that's got there, not from me anyways. There's, there was nothing in our tour literature that would encourage such a thing. Hey, it's, yeah, 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 it's, it's just surprising. And very, very cool, I guess. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And so they were okay in the end because I'd be worried that they'd had an epileptic fit or something like I that. I have not seen anyone experience like that before or since. I should right? see not, it. does not make my experience of, of epilepsy or seizures. I mean, maybe it does right. with some more, more trainers have more experience. Um, but once they're outside, they're fine. There was no gnashing of the teeth. There was no, they, yeah, uh, and they walked out of the graveyard. So to my knowledge, they had an experience and left, right? <laughs> Having had quite an experience. Yeah. Um, but, but they left physically so it, does it seem like uh, all of the the paranormal activity uh, cases uh, or, or experiences that people have had are attributed to George Bloody Mackenzie or are there other reputed ghosts on the grounds I mean there are there are there are occasionally infrequently sightings of various things like um like the your typical like spectral white lady going around the place uh, and children as well they're not so common. They're not so common. Um, this stuff largely happens inside of this one particular tomb at this point. So wh- why is it called the Black Mausoleum? It's, it's so, because like, I wasn't there to start, all I can give you is hearsay for that one. It allegedly starts um, before the tours even begin, like uh, just because of what was going on. When you, when you get there, come on a tour, when you get to stand outside of a tomb, it's immediately obvious. It is a small, dark 
to a small dark mausoleum. It's not particularly large. It'll hold maybe a hundred something people if you pushed in. It's about it. The light, like, there's something about the quality of the light in there. It just, it just seems like dark. I can't, I can't describe it any better than that, Blake. I'm afraid it just seems. No, that's dark. okay. Do you actually go inside it during the tours? Yes, sir. We okay. do indeed. Yeah. Okay. Ooh. So cool. that, I mean, we go in, and that's how we that's how we experience it. Um, and that's how we know that the stuff that happens in this particular black mausoleum happens. That's always. We, we, we do our best to keep accounts, acknowledgements of also all the stuff that happens within and around it. So, and uh, please, didn't on. you say, sorry, didn't you say to, to us, uh, just when we were communicating with you uh, to begin with, you said that there have been over 500 documented cases or, or so it's curious. I mean, that's an easy number to claim. The answer is there have been substantially more than that. We were claiming for over 400 uh, shortly after I started being a tour guide, and that was like over 10 years ago. So for at least eight years, we've had well in excess of that. How many tours do you run a week? At the moment, we run about five a night. Um, wow. One of, those, one of those does not go through the graveyard, though it goes specifically through the South Bridge vaults themselves. Got it. Um yeah, but the three out of three of the five of them end up um, inside this black mausoleum. Yeah? And like, I wish we could claim a higher, a higher rate than this of, of violent attacks. But in fact, I don't think we'd be able to get it past health and safety. Well, right. Yeah, I, I don't want anybody to get hurt. I mean, but I mean, you're doing, uh, what, 35 a week times 52. That's a lot of tour. How many people go on a tour? Oh, um, so the current tour cap set by the council is 35, uh, and we'll run with a minimum of around about sort of somewhere between two and eight, depending on the composition of the group um, and the time of the tour. Interesting. So I, I know this is your your primary job is to take people on tours, not to do statistics. But I was curious, do you, do you keep track of how many people report versus how many don't report having incidents to get some sort of statistical information about what percentage of people experience weird things? The answer is that we unfortunately have nothing formal in place, right? So we have a book of accounts at the end that people are welcome to come and fill out, right? Of course they're welcome to do so. Sure. Um, and if somebody experiences something, we will endeavor, we will encourage them to fill this book out um, with their experience, sign, date it, give us some way of contacting them so that, so that everyone knows that we're not cheating, right? Sure, because it's important to us that it comes from the mouths of somebody else. I mean, if we can make if we can make this stuff up, I'm pretty sure we would. It'd be hilarious. Um, but, <laughs> like, but but it's but really. you know, I mean, to be fair, it's injuries, and 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 I you you've got pictures of people you know posting scratches and and what look like Videos, bruises yeah. and stuff. So yeah, I mean, uh, for all the I mean, it's interesting from a paranormal perspective, but somebody they're being injured, right? So yeah, mm. it's curious and 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 somewhat scary. So there are a bunch of ways that we find it tricky because so we have this book as a way of keeping track of things formally. Um, quite often the guides will be approached by people after the tour, people who say, hey, this really weird thing happened or hey, look at these scratches or like, I felt this cold sensation or I felt like I was being pushed or choked or punched or kicked or mm, like a burning sensation or a scratch or whatever, whatever it is, right? a whole bunch of things. Um, and oftentimes that's just the words in the ear of the guide at the end. And we, we we tell each other, but because it's quite a solitary job, as you can imagine, right? we we have a little a little office in the in the graveyard, full of full of like, books of actually pretty cool stuff, I think, um, as well as well as some nonsense like old scary movies. Um, 
<laughs> we love that. We've got to come yeah. and visit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come along. We'll catch you. It'd be great. Um, One day. <laughs> so, yeah, like, I mean, like the actual communication between us doesn't doesn't really happen very much. They, we, we, we've been doing it for so long and these things happen so regularly that we just just don't pass the information on. What about your guides themselves? I mean, you guys seems like you would be exposed to this more than anybody. Have you guys had any trouble? We, we, we have a bunch of trouble happening, right? So, I mean, in terms of our experience there, like some of my colleagues have been, just get randomly strangled by their scarves. They somehow, when the, when the um, gate was being replaced and there was a different kind of door and lock in there, two of them got locked in um, somehow from a gate that locks on the outside. <laughs> right? Uh, we get shown by scarves. Like I've walked out of there with these three gouges down my chest. I've experienced the cold spots. Um, what else the guys experience? Sometimes they'll just feel really, really uncomfortable. Um, but we just take it in our stride. I mean, it's part it's part of the job. It's what keeps us coming back. You either like if you don't like it, don't do the job. Right. Yeah. Do, have you had anybody quit out of fear? Um. No. No is the answer. But it seems, it seems like it's self-selecting. You, you would, people wouldn't take the job if they were afraid, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Yes, I mean you've got to be a bit pretty quirky um, <laughs> and curious <laughs> to take this kind of thing up. The bits where we do have concerns is that like, previously, um, up until, oh, gosh, I don't know for an official figure. I'm going to say ten years for argument's sake. Ten years ago or so, the gates were closed at night. The graveyard itself. Um, which meant that it was relatively safe. Now the council refuses to have the gates closed. And what that means is that um, sometimes they're unfortunately repurposed for illegal activities. Um, and also Edinburgh has, um, okay, it has a homeless problem, as, as many, many cities and places do. Uh, and the tombs, when they're left open, provide an opportunity for someone who really needs some kind of shelter to get a break. Um, and sometimes that comes with commensurate with um, mental health concerns, right? And oftentimes the uh, the most dangerous thing in the graveyard is not what lies in the prison itself and the black mausoleum, but comes from the human factor. Right. Yeah. Do do so. Uh, oh, sorry, let, Karen, you go. Sorry, if, if you have a question. Um. Well, yeah. I mean, we're we're kind of coming to drawing to a, a close soon so i was just going to um ask a change topic just slightly um just to say that uh grief rise has got quite a few famous residents um but one of the most famous residents is a dog so could you tell us a little <laughs> bit about grief rise bobby and, and is he believed to haunt the cemetery <laughs> oh my goodness so do you know what the answer is no not until recently when a tour company started telling people that he was um <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's not, he's not believed to haunt the place. Um, my manager is an extraordinary woman. Um, she does so much of the like primary research. It's so interesting, especially given, I think your chat with Alison last time around and people just kind of reading blogs and stuff like this and taking things at face value. Um, she, she, she goes right and she loves nothing more than getting into the archives and pulling out bundles of stuff that are hundreds of years old that no one's looked at. Um, since they were first written, all done up in a beautiful little ribbon and opening them up and finding out what people thought in the 1700s, things like this. Um, really interesting stuff comes out of it. Um, and one of the things she's been looking up researching is the history of Bobby. 
Now, Greyfriars Bobby used to be the reason why Greyfriars was famous, and people travelled on a, a near pilgrimage from the entire globe uh, to pay their respects to him. So if you come in through the main gate of Greyfriars, it's um, a little cobbled entrance, a little bit of tarmac, and then um, directly between you and the kirk as it opens up. And the graveyard spreads out to the sides, but directly in front of you, uh, in between you and the kirk, is a shiny new headstone. Uh, dedicated to Bobby, erected by the American dog, lover, dog lovers, I think. American lovers of Bobby Society, something like this, I forget. So um, it's placed there. He's not buried there. It's been believed that he was buried um, just outside the walls in the streets because dogs are still not allowed in a human graveyard. And I think the answers, the reasons for that are, are pretty self-evident. Um, it's because so nobody's to walk them, is that... love the bones so um in there um yeah so in fact i think the documentation like the original documentation the newspaper reports things like this show that he was buried um in a flower pot a flower bed sorry in a flower bed somewhere very close to that side of the graveyard so it's highly likely that he in fact existed he was noted in the papers before his death before he got super famous um and it's not that he was a, uh, yeah, he was buried in a flower bed near the near the church. Itself. I guess what was he famous for? <laughs> so he was famous for living on his master's grave for fourteen years. The premise is his master turns up, um, and let me preface it with this: uh, there are as many different stories of Bobby as there are people writing stories about Bobby. Right. Right. There are a few stories like this across the globe too, of, of similar stories. Of- yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah. Um, but I mean, it's just been like. Everybody who has a book to write about Bobby comes out with a new set of facts and then rewrites the story of Bobby. So in one version, he's uh, owned by a policeman. In another version, he's owned by a shepherd. Um, it's, it's a bit all over the shop. Um, so, so, yeah, like the story is that he lives in his master's grave for 14 years, um, such as his loyalty and devotion, from, from a puppy through to very, very old age. Um, and the people of Edinburgh... They love him, for sure. They, they absolutely love him. The legend goes that he's given the keys to the city um, for his for his loyalty and devotion. Never mind that he's got no, no opposable thumb to use it with. Um, <laughs> also, apparently, uh, that means we gave the right to vote to a dog like some considerable time before we would give it to a woman. Right? It's, <laughs> it's wow. really peculiar. Um, so, so this was the uh, 19th century, wasn't it, yes, when he died? Yeah. But he, he's one of these dogs that's alleged to have come to the grave of his master after his master dies and stays there, right? He's so loyal and devoted. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> I mean, his, like, various different stories say that maybe he was replaced <laughs> at some point. Yeah, like Skippy, yeah. the kangaroo. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, wait, I, I, I'm especially fond of the... There's a, a an incident, a variant of this in the Discworld series uh, by Terry Pratchett, oh, where shots. basically the whole thing is the dog's loyal... But he's not that loyal, but they put the tombstone down on his tail so he can't leave the grave. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it. So, I love so, that's a charming a story idea. anyway. Yeah. So he used to be by the graveyard is famous. And, and now it turns out that the bulk of tourism is because of uh, Harry Potter. Harry Potter? Uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. But, uh, why? Why? <laughs> Do I sense a bit of the Harry Potter fan in you? A bit, a bit, a bit. Yeah, just a little bit, huh? Don't muggle me. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the 
behind the school, sorry, behind the Covenanters prison, a portion of the graveyard, is um, a large castle-like school called Harriet's, uh, believed to be the inspiration for Hogwarts. Round in the, the rear, the westernmost portion of the graveyard, uh, lies the tomb of, uh, sorry, the, the headstone and burial place of, uh, he who should not be named, Thomas Riddle. There we go. Really? Right? Wow. Yep. Uh, Moody is also in there, somewhere along the flooding wall. Uh, William McGonagall, officially the world's worst poet. Uh, he is <laughs> also got a bath in there, along with a piece of his extraordinary poetry that you'll never get out of your brain once you've read it. Wow. So does the Hogwarts Express have a, a, a stop at Edinburgh? That I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, so it's famous for lots of different reasons. Yes, yes, indeed. So can I bring us to this? So earlier on, uh, you asked about skepticism. Uh, in your skepticism's uh, in your name here as well. Um, I find it very interesting. So, for example, this. Um, people often ask me if I believe in a paranormal, in ghosts, things like this, especially given the nature of what I do. And I find it a tricky question to answer. What I've observed is this, that um, when people experience something, either in the Southbridge vaults or in the Black Mausoleum inside of this prison area, um, they really experience something. Now, what you attribute it to is, is entirely like a separate matter. They really experience something. And I think people can be remarkably um, unkind and disingenuous um, when they say to people, well, you're talking nonsense because there's no such thing, so it must be in your head. Right? These people have genuinely experienced something. They, uh, these people are making no effort to find out what that experience was and no effort to find out what the mechanism behind it is. really dismissive, I think, is what I'm looking for. And what happens to people when they have their belief systems challenged and when they have um, their, their experience dismissed, right? we lose a little piece of ourselves in the process. We lose our sense of self when we feel diminished like that. And we it immediately gets our back up, right? Immediately, it just creates some distance. People get all hostile about it. And I think, um, like the guy I've been studying, this wonderful um, my hypnotist from, from last century, uh, Dave Dobson, fascinating man, he's got a wonderful way of talking about belief systems. He says, you can tell a belief system but when you bump up against it. I think a cursory experience of anyone who's paid attention outside of themselves um, will appreciate that sentiment. Uh, especially if you're in the business of talking to people about the paranormal. Um, and like that people just clamp down and stuff. Uh, the same thing goes for people from the other side, people who are believers. When they experience something weird in these places and they say, oh, it's a ghost or a poltergeist or whatever they're blaming it on, right? Without any notion of the mechanism of how it happens, without any, any evidence that that's what's happening. Does that, does that make sense to you? Yeah. Like if oh, they've yeah, got sure. into the table here, then, then all they've done is just, again, stated a belief system and they've asked everybody else to take it on faith. And mm -hmm. like, it might still be something truly bizarre and paranormal, but now we have no room for discussion because we've got two groups of people who are just stating how they feel about something and their beliefs and all this rich space in the middle for discussion. Like from mm -hmm. what I appreciate, I think, from what I've listened to your work, that you're doing your best to inhabit right there in the middle. Um, that, that for me is lost when these two camps of people just come straight at it with, with a blanket statement of it was this, without any 
any right. any foundation to it. <laughs> yeah, we we've set up shop in a minefield. It's not really wise. <laughs> I think it's a great place to be. I think like when did feeling uncomfortable end up being so bad? Right? Like it's gonna be uncomfortable if you don't know stuff. People I think we've already discussed this. Like people love the easy narrative. It seems so human because it's tricky for us to hold these competing notions in our body and in our mind. But that's that's where real value is. That's where we get to learn new stuff. That's where progress and growth are. Right? And it's gonna feel uncomfortable. Of course it is. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's the nature of progress and growth. There's that whole thing that they call it the 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 search for cognitive closure. Right. Mm. You, you want to like put a put a button on it or you just sort of I know it's this and I'm comfortable. But I, you know, maybe, you know, there's there's it's tough because so much of the human experience is dependent on our psychology and we're not very good at evaluating what's real and what's not real. So, you know, our, our goal is that. Yeah. So our goal is to try to, like, see what science can tell us. But we're really interested in the human experience. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we we love the stories, we love folklore and history, and we just try to keep open minds. And uh, yes, we, yeah, these are my favorite parts about it. We certainly enjoyed hearing the the stories you've been telling us and uh, about your own experiences as well. And um, it's just such an incredible place. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I, I have to write the intro and the outro to this, and it's like I uh, part of me says, well. You know, there's uh, a, a wise man once told me that uh, the priming one receives prior to experiencing something can have a huge impact on how one perceives it, right? Uh, that mm-hmm. wise man was Richard Wiseman, but <laughs> <laughs> the point is, <laughs> you know, looking at psychology and all these other things, you know, it, it's hard to say, but you've got real people experiencing really strange things. And it's uh, it's exactly. it, it's yeah. it's it's interesting. And regardless, I mean, we could say, "Oh no, it's it's all about priming," or "Oh no, these people are misinterpreting it." But the people are still experiencing something unusual and weird. And we wanted to talk about it. And we really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thanks very much for having me on. It's been yeah. real good. Uh, I should probably put a plug in there about Hawaii Paracon. I will be there giving some talks, talking about Mackenzie Poltergeist, talking about the attacks, um, with a list of them. Um, and oh uh, no your yeah, job yeah. makes you go to hawaii how terrible what <laughs> <laughs> jealous yeah, yeah. we do have a, a final question um Fred, we always like to ask our guests what's your favorite monster this this is an interesting question for me and i'm gonna make i don't know if this is a bit too highbrow i'm not sure here it goes right so every night i've been working i've been walking past mackenzie's tomb mackenzie's tomb unless you get real up close to it and in Edinburgh, during the winter months, it is dark for much of a day. For like four, four hours of a day, there's some sun through the clouds, if that. And the rest of the time, it's pitch black, right? And Mackenzie's tomb just swallows up the light, swallows it up. And it's imposing. If you, if you look at the Hawaiian Paracon website, you'll see a picture of it there, right? That's Mackenzie's tomb. And when I walk past it, for years, I've had the habit of asking myself, I wonder, I wonder what would scare me inside of there. Right? I wonder what, what that experience inside of there would be that would genuinely get to me um, and really freak me out. And my mind just brings something up, right? Whether it's an image of something or a little video or, or eyes or like a, a sound or some kind of experience or just a sense inside of me of something there. Um, it really gets to me. It, and it's this, I think it's this nature of, 
I'm a firm believer in that all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. I think a couple of cursory um, thought experiments will demonstrate that to be accurate. And people, when they ask themselves some questions like this, and maybe they're not even aware of asking themselves this, it conjures up exactly the kind of stuff that's going to get to them. Um, and I think for me, like this, this custom-made monster that I couldn't possibly explain to you and would almost certainly not be the same kind of monster that would inhabit inside somewhere if you were to ask yourselves the same question. Um, this, yeah, like this, this is the bit that really gets me. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite thrilling. It's quite exciting uh, to titillate oneself like that. It's really interesting. This has been so much fun hearing about this story. My God, I wish we could take a tour, right, Karen? I mean, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, as I said, one day, someday. Yeah, I got to get a passport. <laughs> oh, really? You don't have a passport? Oh, no. no. Gotta... I'm a typical American. I don't go anywhere. What? <laughs> I Make thought you'd been overseas. And, yeah, anyway. Well, with the Navy, that's not really the same, is it? Right. <laughs> You'd still need a passport, though. You mean you need to renew it, or you? No, they you give you a military passport. It's totally different. Yeah, so you got. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, you get a navy passport when you leave the navy. You have to forfeit it. So I, I don't have a, a, a civilian passport. So not oh, important. Right. I don't have the money to travel right now anyway. But I would love to come to the UK yes, and so. travel make it. Scotland, Ireland, the Isle of Skye, the Isle of Man. I've got so many paranormal-oriented sites I want to go see. So. Mm-hmm. When you make it, come along on a tour as my guest, both of you, please. Absolutely, we totally will. Yeah, maybe we'll crowdfund it one day. Someday. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, thank you so much for your time and absolutely, uh, Fred. Coming on the show short notice as well. Yeah, thank you both. It's been it's been real nice. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with City of the Dead tour guide Fred Fogarty. As I mentioned in the introduction, Fred, Karen, and I continued our discussion via email after we ran out of time for the full set of questions that we'd prepared. It wouldn't be monster talk if we didn't at least remind folks of our stance on ghost phenomena, that when you're faced with potential paranormal situations, we believe you should look at the individual aspects and not group everything together to explain it as a haunting. The skeptic in me always wants to know what are the testable, falsifiable aspects of such stories. So thinking about this, I wrote Fred with a few questions. The first thing I noticed was that online there's many, many versions of the story about the homeless guy breaking into McKenzie's tomb. What I wanted to know was, did this event really happen? And if so, what evidence do we have? Because at this point, it's definitely been corrupted by word-of-mouth retelling. So first, here's Fred's response about that incident. I'm not going to attempt Fred's accent. The man's name is Graham. He exists. The event really happened, though not exactly as described on our tours, and almost guaranteed to be very different to any other tour company's efforts. Currently, Ghost Tourism is very competitive in Edinburgh, and companies are keen to carve out their niche and justify how come they're not going into the prison itself. I know he exists. He came to one of our tours and enjoyed it thoroughly, and I met him at the end and quizzed him on the actual events. Since the police were called, I'm assuming there would be a police record of it, though I don't know how much is or was recorded. The date the homeless guy was said to have broken into McKenzie's tomb is 1998. As there's been quite a number of homeless people seeking refuge in the various tombs in Greyfriars, and the police assigned to the case might not have specifically recorded or even known which tomb it was, I don't know how easy it would be to find the specific record of it with the police themselves. Fred did link to another ghost investigation site, which was allowed to go into McKenzie's tomb, We can't post those photos, but I'll put a link to the article in the show notes, and you can scroll down to the photos and read the notes yourself. 
It certainly does look as though there are a lot of old bones under Mackenzie's coffin, and the flooring around it was perilous, but may have since been repaired. Those photos are from quite a while back, much closer to the time of the original break-in story. The grating's been replaced and is permanently closed, and no tours are allowed in Mackenzie's tomb. Fred wanted me to make it clear that while people call the accompanying phenomena the McKenzie poltergeist, this is not widely believed to be the ghost of McKenzie by most ghost researchers, but rather a phenomena associated with his tomb. As time has passed, the stories have moved to the Black Mausoleum, which is also on the tour, and you actually go inside it on the tour. I think you'll find that there's variants of these stories surrounding the tours, but this is normal for lore of this type. The stories of tour participants passing out and having seizures is interesting to me. I have family members with epilepsy, and this doesn't sound like what I've seen, but it does sound familiar to me from my research into demon possession cases. Before you call me up and ask me to turn in my skeptics card, I'm talking about the topic from a skeptical perspective. I was not there, and I didn't see what these people went through, but the symptoms do sound quite a bit like the stuff I've seen with Bob Larson's exorcist ministry, which I could only describe as elaborate role-playing. I can't be sure that's what happened here. I wasn't there, and even if I had been, I'm not medically qualified to diagnose anyone. What I can say is that the phenomenal claims would make for an interesting skeptical investigation. It would be hard to test, I think, but the first thing that comes to mind would be to build some tour groups composed of volunteers who would let you photograph their arms and legs prior to the tour and then video the tour and then afterwards see if anyone reports injuries that aren't captured on video or film. That's very rough thinking, and a good experiment would need a lot more design than that and a lot of prep work. I haven't had enough time to think about it, and I don't even know if anyone's interested in looking into this to that level. But it's very easy for skeptical people to say, oh, this is just a post hoc rationalization of pre-existing injuries as components of a haunting. But I think that falls into the kind of thinking which gets skeptics accused of being armchair researchers, and I'd love to look at it from a more statistical and practical approach and to see more about the natures of the injuries. Right this minute, that's financially impossible for Karen and myself, but maybe some of our UK listeners can have a look. At any rate, it sounds like you'd have a fun and historically interesting tour of a fascinating site. And if Fred's any indication, you'll certainly be entertained, even if you don't solve the mystery or encounter any oddities. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests, and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Save the date for a colossal PsyCon 2018. Bigger venue, bigger stars, bigger ideas, bigger fun. Las Vegas, October the 18th to the 21st, 2018. 
SciCon is already one of the planet's premier skeptical conferences where hundreds of critical thinkers come to Las Vegas, the city of illusions, to hear from the leading lights of science and skepticism. For 2018, we want SciCon to be bigger than ever. We've even booked a bigger hotel. Come to Las Vegas at the Westgate Resort and Casino to see the brilliant and hilarious Stephen Fry on stage with Richard Dawkins. An opening night talk by Stephen Pinker on the ideas behind his new book, Enlightenment Now. The triumphant return of James the Amazing Randy. Plus, New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer, psychologist and memetics expert Susan Blackmore, the Psybabe Yvette Dontremont, virologist and advocate for science-based medicine Paul Offit, and many, many more, along with comic musician George Rubb, serving as Master of Ceremonies, a magic show from Banachek, author book signings, and of course, a Halloween costume party. It's true, conspiracy theorists, quacks peddling fake medicine, and the deniers of evolution, climate change, and vaccine science are bigger threats than ever. With PsyCon 2018, let's show them that they have just met their match. We'll see you in Las Vegas. For more information and to book your tickets, visit csiconference.org. That's psiconference.org. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. As always, thanks for listening. to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. Right. Now, we give them only um, the food, water, and shelter required just to really prolong this suffering. And just to really drag it out so that as many people as possible can endure five months of this. So like one haggis for every five people, that kind of thing? <laughs> I have no idea. That was terrible. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with City of the Dead tour guide Fred Fogarty. As I mentioned in the introduction, Fred, Karen, and I continued our discussion via email after we ran out of time for the full set of questions that we'd prepared. 
It wouldn't be Monster Talk if we didn't at least remind folks of our stance on the ghost phenomena. That when you're faced with potential paranormal situations, we believe you should look at the individual aspects and not group everything together to explain it as a haunting. The skeptic in me always wants to know what are the testable, falsifiable aspects of such stories. So thinking about this, I wrote Fred with a few questions. The first thing I noticed was that online there's many, many versions of the story about the homeless guy breaking into McKenzie's tomb. What I wanted to know was, did this event really happen? And if so, what evidence do we have? Because at this point, it's definitely been corrupted by word of mouth retelling. So first, here's Fred's response about that incident. I'm not going to attempt Fred's accent. The man's name is Graham. He exists. The event really happened, though not exactly as described on our tours, and almost guaranteed to be very different to any other tour company's efforts. Currently, Ghost Tourism is very competitive in Edinburgh, and companies are keen to carve out their niche and justify how come they're not going into the prison itself. I know he exists. He came to one of our tours and enjoyed it thoroughly, and I met him at the end and quizzed him on the actual events. Since the police were called, I'm assuming there would be a police record of it, though I don't know how much is or was recorded. The date the homeless guy was said to have broken into McKenzie's tomb is 1998. As there's been quite a number of homeless people seeking refuge in various tombs in Greyfriars, and the police assigned to the case might not have specifically recorded or even known which tomb it was, I don't know how easy it would be to find the specific record of it with the police themselves. Fred did link to another ghost investigation site, which was allowed to go into McKenzie's tomb, we can't post those photos, but I'll put a link to the article in the show notes, and you can scroll down to the photos and read the notes yourself. It certainly does look as though there are a lot of old bones under McKenzie's coffin, and the flooring around it was perilous, but may have since been repaired. Those photos are from quite a while back, much closer to the time of the original break-in story. The grating's been replaced and is permanently closed, and no tours are allowed in McKenzie's tomb. Fred wanted me to make it clear that while people call the accompanying phenomena the McKenzie poltergeist, this is not widely believed to be the ghost of McKenzie by most ghost researchers, but rather a phenomena associated with his tomb. As time has passed, the stories have moved to the Black Mausoleum, which is also on the tour, and you actually go inside it on the tour. I think you'll find that there's variants of these stories surrounding the tours, but this is normal for lore of this type. The stories of tour participants passing out and having seizures is interesting to me. I have family members with epilepsy, and this doesn't sound like what I've seen, but it does sound familiar to me from my research into demon possession cases. Before you call me up and ask me to turn in my skeptics card, I'm talking about the topic from a skeptical perspective. I was not there, and I didn't see what these people went through, but the symptoms do sound quite a bit like the stuff I've seen with Bob Larson's exorcist ministry, which I could only describe as elaborate role-playing. I can't be sure that's what happened here. I wasn't there, and even if I had been, I'm not medically qualified to diagnose anyone. What I can say is that the phenomenal claims would make for an interesting skeptical investigation. It would be hard to test, I think, but the first thing that comes to mind would be to build some tour groups composed of volunteers who would let you photograph their arms and legs prior to the tour and then video the tour and then afterwards see if anyone reports injuries that aren't captured on video or film. That's very rough thinking, and a good experiment would need a lot more design than that and a lot of prep work. I haven't had enough time to think about it, and I don't even know if anyone's interested in looking into this to that level. But it's very easy for skeptical people to say, oh, this is just a post-hoc rationalization of pre-existing injuries as components of a haunting. But I think that falls into the kind of thinking which gets skeptics accused of being armchair researchers, and I'd love to look at it from a more statistical and practical approach and to see more about the natures of the injuries.
Right this minute, that's financially impossible for Karen and myself, but maybe some of our UK listeners can have a look. At any rate, it sounds like you'd have a fun and historically interesting tour of a fascinating site. And if Fred's any indication, you'll certainly be entertained, even if you don't solve the mystery or encounter any oddities. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests, and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Save the date for a colossal PsyCon 2018. Bigger venue, bigger stars, bigger ideas, bigger fun. Las Vegas, October the 18th to the 21st, 2018. PsyCon is already one of the planet's premier skeptical conferences where hundreds of critical thinkers come to Las Vegas, the city of illusions, to hear from the leading lights of science and skepticism. For 2018, we want PsyCon to be bigger than ever. We've even booked a bigger hotel. Come to Las Vegas at the Westgate Resort and Casino to see the brilliant and hilarious Stephen Fry on stage with Richard Dawkins. An opening night talk by Steven Pinker on the ideas behind his new book, Enlightenment Now. The triumphant return of James the Amazing Randy. Plus, New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer, psychologist and memetics expert Susan Blackmore, the Psybabe Yvette Dontremont, virologist and advocate for science-based medicine Paul Offit and many, many more, along with comic musician George Rubb, serving as Master of Ceremonies, a magic show from Banachek, author book signings, and of course, a Halloween costume party. It's true, conspiracy theorists, quacks peddling fake medicine, and the deniers of evolution, climate change, and vaccine science are bigger threats than ever. With PsyCon 2018, let's show them that they have just met their match. We'll see you in Las Vegas. For more information and to book your tickets, visit csiconference.org. That's psiconference.org. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thanks for listening.
Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. Right. Now, we give them only um, the food, water, and shelter required just to really prolong this suffering. And just to really drag it out so that as many people as possible can endure five months of this. So like one haggis for every five people, that kind of thing? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> that was terrible. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> it's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.